Welcome to the Abstract Podcast, where we talk about ideas that matter. My name is Javen. And I'm Colin. And today on the show, we have Carlin Backer. We discuss some of his life story, along with a really cool idea that he explains to us. But before we get to that, Colin, what movie are you going to go watch soon? I think I'm going to watch a movie. I think it comes out in the next week or two. It's called Midway. It's a new movie. Um... I don't remember who the director is, but it's about the the island hopping campaign of the U.S. military in World War II. So it looked kind of fascinating. So I think I might check that one out. Cool. And I've seen a brief trailer. Doesn't that have, is it Dennis Quaid, the guy from I the I think it's Dennis Quaid and maybe even, uh, it had some, some big some names in it. So I don't know. I think it would probably be well done. I hope. Cool. We'll see once. I forget who the director or who's even making it, but I think it'll be a good movie. You? I think I'm going to go watch The Wizard of Oz because I've never watched The Wizard of Oz and people tell me that that's a travesty or something. Yeah. So. Well, I found there's like there's certain movies that are apparently induction into or induction from childhood into adulthood and I missed out on some of these. Like I didn't see Lion King till I was like Whoa. 16, 17. That is sad. Yeah. So I missed out on some of those. So maybe I'll be a whole new more of a person really. Well, if it watch. helps you out in your formation as a person, um, let me know because I've not seen it. So, okay. yeah, check that out. So go check out those movies. Maybe we'll maybe have to say if they're good or not, and yes. we recommend them to our listeners. One thing we do recommend to our listeners every week—that's right—is Hershberger's Bakery in Fair Place, South Carolina. Always a must. Donuts, sandwiches, drinks, whoopie pies. They're whoopie pies. You can't even eat in one sitting. They're so big. Yeah. Yes. Last time I was there and I was checking out, I seen the whoopie pies and they're, I just like massive. my jaw just like dropped. Yeah. Like, it's it was huge. It's basically a cake. It is. And it's delicious. <laughs> so, we highly recommend those. Those are things we do recommend. Yes. We'll have to touch base with you on the movies whether or not we recommend those. Certainly. But enjoy the interview here with Carlin Backer. Carlin, thanks for sitting down with me, and you did this on the way home from work, so I appreciate you making your day work with this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my yeah. first podcast. Really? Wow. All right, so um, there's so much we could talk about, and we don't have tons of time. So I want to hear, first of all, just about your story, and um, part of your story is being being uh, a doctor, or... I'm a nurse. Is that the right term? A nurse, right? <laughs> medical practitioner in um in africa correct yeah so tell me tell me just kind of like what that was like because obviously during the ebola um outbreak you were there yeah so uh, uh, ebola happened after i arrived in sierra leone but it it wasn't the the reason i went to sierra leone initially um well if, if we go back a little bit um when I was considering um, going to college, um, you know, medical missions was always kind of in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And um, so tried tried to live, you know, intentionally and, and pursue education that would be helpful in that context. Yeah. And, um, and so then when the opportunity presented itself, um, yeah, it, it, it was a big decision, but, you know, I was excited. I ha- I was invited to help um, start a medical clinic in Sierra Leone. 
And um, I had been drawn to the country even during my training. Um, two of my uncles had um, been involved with a small organization um, doing work there after the Civil War. And mm -hmm. so I had some personal connection and had heard a lot of stories. The Civil and, War in Sierra Leone. In Sierra Leone. Yeah. And um, the, the war ended in about 2001, 2002, okay. I think. And, um, and so I, I had heard a lot of stories. And while in nursing school, um, you know, sometimes you have different elective projects. Mm -hmm. and, and because of my interest in the country, some of those projects, I used it as an opportunity to research more about the country. Sure. And at the time, um, didn't necessarily know if I would be working specifically in Sierra Leone, but I um, was interested in working in probably a context like Sierra Leone. And after graduation, um, I worked as an ER nurse for a number of years and, um, and kept looking for opportunities. And um, I, I had a relationship with the founder of this organization and um, I gone on several short-term missions trips with him that included mm -hmm. a medical component. And on one of those trips, he just mentioned that they were trying to build a, a permanent medical facility. And um, there had been some bumps in the road and they were having a little bit of a hard time um, finishing it and finding medical personnel to run it. And so it was an invitation um, to come and help open it, maybe train some um, staff members initially. And uh, originally he asked for like a, a six months to a year commitment. Mm -hmm. And and so I had a lot of interest in that and, and said, yeah. So if I could just stop you right there, like just the whole, um, the process of getting there, like, did you feel like it was like God's call on your life? Or did you just feel like this was, because I'm interested to hear the different ways that people, you know, get to where they go. And that's something I've always wondered, you know, does God like, does, did he just lay it on your heart? It was just something that you were interested in. Like, here's a need. I can fill this need. Yeah. Um, it was, it was really a, a mix and it probably depends on which phase of my life you would yeah, ask. Certainly. Like I, my, my parents, um, did mission work, um, in Northern Ontario, Canada. So as a child, I, I kind of grew up um, around missions. And I remember distinctly, it, it was probably my early teens, um, you know, walking through, we called it the bush, but the woods, mm -hmm. um, and having this thought, and I don't know if I said it verbally out loud, but at least having this thought that I probably wouldn't be involved in missions at any point, because <laughs> at that point, I, I didn't <laughs> think it looked real attractive. Um, but then I had several experiences, I, I would say kind of post high school and, um, where I, um, I, I kind of laid my dreams and aspirations on the altar and, um, mm. kind of, you know, begin holding them with open, open hands. And, um, and then there was a time period where, um, there was a missions emphasis weekend at, um, a Bible school I was attending and I felt like, um, one, I needed to surrender that as a possibility. And, um, and, 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 and after that release, yeah, I had more, more of an interest in it. And, and I had some examples of, uh, of people who had went before me who had, you know, studied 
medicine who had studied nursing um, intentionally um, with the idea of, of using that to help others yeah. in, in, in needy conflicts. So in, in a context like that. And so I had these examples. And so with that mind shift from going of, I'm not going to be a missionary to laying yeah, it on Please me. God, don't call me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to more of an open-handed approach. Um, the interest did grow. And then by the time I was in nursing school, um, I at least, um, thought it was a likely possibility and was trying to, um, live in a way that it, that it could happen if the opportunity yeah, presented sure. itself. So then we kind of fast forward. There was a need and this guy asked you if you would be willing to, to come be a part of the program over there. Correct. Yeah. So, so how old were you at that point? Um, late twenties. Okay. Late twenties. And then, and so what does that look like? What do you start? What's your role there? So, yeah, I, I agreed to go and then I spent about nine months kind of preparing and kind of wrapping up my job. Mm. Um, lots of conversations with other people who had been doing this kind of work, um, visited a clinic in Haiti and did some shadowing um, and did a lot of reading, just trying to understand what it takes to, to lead the operations of, of this type of work. Yeah. And um, yeah, I had a lot of conversations and um, so kind of had a plan in place. Well, when I landed in Sierra Leone, um, it became a little bit more complicated um, as things <laughs> often do. <laughs> and um, long story short, um, the organization um, made some big decisions within probably about three or four months of my arrival that, um, you know, this, this type of um, project required a lot of administrative support and a lot of good local partnerships. And um, those two things were a little weaker than they had originally thought. <laughs> and so... Um, the organization actually decided to restructure and go from an on the ground implementing partner to a, a funder where they would channel funds to ministries that were already established. Okay. And, and so, um, it, it was a difficult time because it quickly became apparent that what I went to do wasn't going to work out. Yeah. Um, but I, I had felt enough clarity in making the decision to go that I quickly began to see it as, you know, this was the way God got me there. Mm -hmm. And so, again, kind of opening my hands and just saying, now what? And, and, and then being open to the opportunities that happened after that. Yeah, sure. Wow. That's, that's interesting. Like the, <laughs> you went from a place of, God, I don't want to be in the mission field at all. And then kind of saying, okay, maybe, you know, this is my gifting and I would be willing to use it there. And then you go and then having to open your hands again and say, okay, that's, yeah, that's the position. seems like we often find ourselves in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what year is this? Like, where are we at in, on the timeline here? So this would have happened in um, late 2013, I would have made the transition. Okay. And then in early 2014, it became apparent that um, 
my original plan, you know, wasn't going to work out. So I began looking for other opportunities and I quickly uh, found some other worthy things to be involved with. And we can talk about that if you like, or go in your direction. Yeah, certainly. So I began volunteering with an academic partnership from King's College in London, and they were um, working at the large government hospital in Freetown in Mm -hmm. the capital city. And um, so it was a little bit of a unique situation where you had this academic institution with people embedded in a government-run hospital in a a city like Freetown, Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. And they really saw themselves to be about capacity building, building the capacity of the local hospital. And that um, included a whole array of things from medical care and education to administrative structures, etc. So that's where I found my place. My emergency room background was actually a really good fit at the time because um, I was able to do a lot of training in, in their emergency department with the nurses on concepts of triage and other things related. So uh, it wasn't at all what I went to do, but I ended up landing in a pretty neat place. Hmm. So during your time over there, were were you doing mostly like training or like procedural work? Um, It ended up being a lot more um, training and administration and supportive work than I had anticipated. And then uh, I'm trying to remember back from what I've heard. Was there also a point where you were doing some sort of uh, like diplomatic work? So, I mean, not not diplomatic work, no. But um, when you're doing these types of partnerships, you end up rubbing shoulders with a with a lot of different people, mm-hmm. including um, people from the government of the host country and um, other people as well. So, so I was only at that partnership for a few months, and. Um, in um, well, late 2013, there was a young child in Guinea, which is a neighboring country, who contracted an unknown illness and died. Okay. Um, and then um, whatever he had, other people begin to contract and get sick. And it took until um, the end of March for it to kind of get on the radar of people who needed mm-hmm. to know, like the, the World Health Organization. And by the end of March, they they were able to diagnose it as an Ebola outbreak. And um, the, the, these three countries um, in West Africa, they're each about the size of a state here in the United yeah. States, just to give you an idea of the geographical spread. And um, so Guinea was was a, a, a nearby neighbor and they, they had Ebola. So there was a lot of... Um, concern about it crossing borders and affecting other nearby countries. Um, within only a few weeks, um, there were cases in Liberia, which was our other neighbor. And so we mm. were now surrounded by <laughs> two countries that had active outbreaks going on. And so, um, yeah, we felt like it would only be a matter of time until it crossed the border into Sierra Leone. And, and so, um, yeah, my role kind of shifted from in, in the emergency room to helping um, set up an isolation unit wow. in, in the government hospital in Freetown. And some of those experiences um, were where I had the opportunity to rub shoulder with Ministry of Health government type personnel. Yeah. So when someone contracts Ebola, what's that? <laughs> Not that you've had Ebola, but what's that like? What, is, what does Ebola do to the body? 
So it's a, it's called like a hemorrhagic fever. And so, um, yeah, I mean, often the, the initial symptoms are pretty vague, like flu-like symptoms. Um, often there's a fever component to it. Often there's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea mm-hmm. component. And then in like a worst case scenario, there would be a hemorrhagic component where you might be vomiting blood or something like that. Um, but often people will die from like the electrolyte imbalance with all of the diarrhea and the vomiting and other things going on. Um, I would probably say even more than the hemorrhagic component, but um, mm. it can be a, a, a very painful process and, and death. And because of the contagious nature of it, often patients are put into isolation units. And so that being separated from your family in, in, in time of, um, you know, great, great need and, you know, with death being a possibility, um, that social yeah, component can be really isolating and really difficult for patients. Yeah, certainly. So how long does it take for Sierra Leone and the surrounding countries to get Ebola back under control? How long does that take? So it was, um, it's a good question. I, I it was well over a year okay. before it was, um, considered over. So, so yeah, it kicked off in March and then, um, the end of May, uh, Sierra Leone started having some cases. Hmm. So as we, I kind of want to transition into sort of the second half of what we want to talk about. Um, I know I'm sure you could talk a lot more about your time over there, but as far as what it, what your, your time in Africa and I guess even just like the last uh, five or six years of your life have done in terms of formation for you. And when we were um, going back and forth about having this interview and what we were going to talk about, you mentioned this idea of praxis. And I really like to hear you talk about um, praxis. Sure. So, yeah, uh, I, I would say a lot of um, my formation um, ideas, and you know, when, when you're in a context like that and mm-hmm. the need is great um, and you see a lot of people um, trying to respond to the need um, through international missions, international development initiatives, yeah. and that type of thing. Um, if you're there for any amount of time, you quickly see the groups who are doing it well and the groups who, um, <laughs> who maybe have really good hearts and really good <laughs> intentions. Right. Um, but, but sometimes their, their money is actually causing problems. And so um, I would say big parts of my formation and my journey over the last five or so years, you know, has been kind of driven by this question of how can we do this better? And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and some of that desire, I ended up going back to school and studying international development as a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And in, in the process, I um, read um, a book by a uh, a Portuguese or an author from Brazil, mm-hmm. a por- Portuguese name, Paulo Freire. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this neat book called uh, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And um, okay. I'd encourage anybody interested in international development or helping others to, to potentially read it. But he, he has this idea called praxis in the book. And um, he defines praxis as happening when, um, when your actions... Are, are intersecting with reflection and, and, and both are happening. And, um, 
and, and so it's it's kind of this this powerful idea of of not always doing, mm-hmm. but you know taking time to reflect on what you're doing and um, and and he would talk about it in the context of community and um, and, and you go into this further in, in the book, but this idea of instead of going in and doing for others, you know, shoulder to shoulder, doing it together and, and, and evaluating it together. Right. That's what I was going to ask. So then even the component of where you're reflecting as a group too on your action. It absolutely. Yeah. Huh. And so, um, I, I kind of pushed into this idea in grad school a little bit mm-hmm. and, um, kind of recycled it for several different pro- projects, um, assignments. And, um, I, I kind of put it in a diagram to help um, make sense of it in my mind. Yeah, and so you kind of have four quadrants and um, and just kind of reflecting on what happens when um, when you get out of balance. Sure. So if you yeah, so picture kind of visually imagine. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about an X and Y axis graph yeah. with four quadrants. Sure. Yeah. And and so imagine, you know, one of the lines is action the things you do mm-hmm. and then the intersecting axis is reflection sure so if you start in the lower um i guess you would call it the right quadrant and um we'll say that reflection is is going horizontally and action is going vertically yeah. and this is probably a little hard to visualize <laughs> on a podcast certainly but so in, in that quadrant if you happen to be high on reflection but low on action um, that's where cynicism can set in. Mm. And, um, and that's the example of the armchair quarterback. Right? Yeah. The, yeah. So you have a lot of ideas on how things should be, and you're probably pretty critical on how other people are doing things. <laughs> yeah. And so I can sometimes land in this quadrant, probably more yeah. often than I care to admit. Me as well, yeah. Okay, so uh, that's in the bottom right. Yeah, or yeah we can visualize it that way. The other yeah. So then, then what's the other way where you're, you're flipped... Um, I guess it would be low in, uh, well, you say it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, and we can go around this circle in different ways, but another quadrant, if you're low in both, and that person <laughs> is just apathetic and um, probably not accomplishing anything and probably not really caring, just kind of taking up space existing sure. and kind of a, a depressing place to be. <laughs> um, and then a, a, another um place you can become unbalanced is if you're too active and not reflective enough. And these people can probably (laughs) get a lot done, but they're probably not always very collaborative and they're probably not reflecting on how effective their work is. Just the work and that's their metric is whether or not they've done something. Mm, Yeah. They've accomplished some tasks. Yeah. Regardless of maybe the impact. And often, especially in a cross-cultural context, um, you can create a wake of damage behind you if you're high on action and low on reflection. And so then the sweet spot is when you're doing both. And it's even better when you're doing it collectively with those you're working beside. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Paolo Freire would call this praxis. That's how he defines the okay. word praxis. Well, that's so interesting. So with, with this in mind, um, you know, I'm sure... What are the what are the ways that your worldview of of life in general, but maybe of mission specifically, have been shaped by by what you've seen over there? Like you mentioned, some groups that would come in who are maybe a little uh, 
little whacked on the the praxis graph here <laughs> yeah and and so i mean i think you know we could take any of those groups and with a little bit of analysis we could probably graph them <laughs> um, i mean mo- most groups that are trying to do good um actually probably a lot of them will land in the quadrant where they're high on action and maybe mm-hmm. a little bit too low on reflection mm-hmm. or their reflection um they have their cultural lens that they're looking through and they don't have enough awareness of what's actually going on. And if they're only in the country for a short amount of time, um, there's a lot that they miss. Even if they think they're being reflective, they're missing a lot just by the fact they're there for a short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, how, how can you even know? Yeah. It takes years to know a culture. And even then you're like, wow, I still don't know much. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about maybe some of us are gifted there in different uh, areas. And so that would be kind of a communal aspect of this idea, whereas some people might be really great at high action and getting some stuff done, but they need their reflective neighbor to keep them from doing more damage. Absolutely. And um, I probably tend to be a little more analytical Mm -hmm. and and I have worked with a lot of visionaries and... um, and after um, working with the King Sierra Leone Partnership, I did some other work, and um, it, it was close, more closely aligned with what I thought I was originally going to, but it ended up being with a different group. And um, in that group, there were a number of visionaries, and I, I feel like we, we did partner well together mm-hmm. because we were able to complement each other. People would have the ideas, and then I could come along and say, okay, that's a good idea. Have you thought of this? And then later, maybe this is how we can get to where you're wanting to go. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. Working in community, there can be a lot of blessings. Yeah. So then I guess let's just let's just kind of come full circle. The Ebola outbreak is, um, what should we say, tamed in which year? Like when is it when is it finally? So I, I, I should have looked these dates up before I sat down here, but I, I believe it was... Um, it was early 2016, I think, okay. when it was officially declared over, or late 2015. Yeah. And, and at one point it was declared over, and then there was a small resurgence. Um, so that's why it's a little bit hard to remember the timeline. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And then how long did you stay in Africa, and when did you come back? So, uh, yeah, I was there for a total of about five years and have been back about a year now. So then around 2016... Um, the Ebola epidemic is kind of over, thank God. Where And then where does this find you in terms of your story? So at, at that point, I was um, continuing to work with an organization called Jericho Road, and we had um, opened one clinic mm-hmm. in, in the rural part of the country, and then later we opened a second one. Um, so, so yeah, I was based in the capital supporting those two clinics for, for a number of years. And in the process, I had um, met uh, a young lady from Alabama who happened to also be <laughs> in Sierra Leone, and we had started dating. And, um, and yeah, we got married um, in 2016. Wow. So you're married in 2016, 
And then well, you guys got married. You came back to get married, correct? Correct. So yeah. we were back for about three months over the wedding. And then back in Africa together? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And we, we kept on. She was working with another ministry um, called Word Made Flesh, and she continued working with them, and I continued supporting my ministry. And then in um, 2018, um, she became pregnant, and we were kind of evaluating, you know, what, what was next, and... Um, we, we decided to make the transition back to the States, um, at least temporarily. And, um, and so we welcomed our son in November of last year. Yeah, that's awesome. And November of last year. So where does that find you guys right now? So right now she's actually back in school and I'm working at the local cancer Institute in, um, quality and compliance. <laughs> so I'm able to engage the analytical side of my mind and sure. learn a lot of new cool skills. Yeah. I can be reflective. <laughs> Keeping those visionaries in check. <laughs> for real. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks for, thanks for sitting down with me. Um, yeah, I just remember, I remember thinking about you while you were over there and, and praying for you. And it's just, it's great to hear your story. And, um, yeah. Do you, do you think you'll ever go back? Um, open to the idea, but it would look much different with, with children in the yeah. mix. Well, it seems to be a, a theme with you is keeping your hands open. Cause you, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed um, sharing the story. And, um, I, I admire what you're doing with communication and Thanks. podcasting and blogging. So I yeah. think, I think you, you have some cool things ahead. Thanks man. That was my conversation with Carlin Backer, and we were very thankful that he was willing to sit down and have a conversation with us. And I think he was thankful for the loaf of bread that he got at the end. Yes, he did to, get his loaf of bread. Yeah. I was a little forgetful. I didn't hand it to him that day, but I seen him <laughs> at church on Sunday, and I got it to him then. We'll make that right. Yeah. Yeah. No guest goes without the bread. That's not actually true. That's not true completely. It's mostly true. It's mostly true. It yeah. is that. Um, no, it's an interesting conversation. Let's talk about a couple of things. The two main things, the first one being calling. Yeah. You talked about feeling a sense of calling. You asked a good question. Your question was along the lines of, um, do, do you remember what the question you kind of asked him about calling? Well, I mean, he he felt, he was saying that, like, earlier on in his life, he was a missionary kid. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really thrilled, maybe, about that being kind of his life later right. on. But then he was passionate about, um, about, like, medical studies right. and that kind of thing. And then one thing led to another. Yeah. I don't know. It was just interesting to hear how his pursuit of the medical field and um, God's calling on, on his life, which he kind of it sounded like he kind of kept feeling it, uh, a sense of discovering that and having it affirmed as he dug deeper in medical studies and found out this is more and more um, something that uh, he enjoys to do, but also that he thinks he should do. Um, and it seems like they kind of intertwine that as he dug deeper yeah. in his medical studies. I, I always enjoy hearing people talk about their experience with finding their way to mm -hmm. where they've been, like with whether or not it's like God called me here or this was just something I felt like I should do. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I don't really know who said it, but it's that we're not given our gifts for ourselves. We're like, we're given our gifts for the sake of other people as well. So. I, don't, I mean, what could be more practical than that than medical right. type things? Like, you learn medical 
the medical field so that you can help other people and and heal the world. I mean, but yeah. So Carlin he pursued that, and then I guess the doors opened up, and yeah. he was able to go to Africa. So that was that was cool to hear. Yeah. Um, the one thing let's talk about a little bit. He started talking about this really fascinating idea of praxis. Yeah. So he, there was four quadrants in the praxis, and the the X Y plots, the X Y lines were um, action and reflection. Mm-hmm. And so, just quickly remember the the when action was low and reflection was low, that makes you apathetic. Mm-hmm. When action's high, reflection's low, that can make you... Um, damaging. Damaging. <laughs> yes, that's a good word. Um, and Then when you have reflection high and action low, you tend to become cynical. Right. Ideally, you're, you're doing there both you simultaneously. Yeah. Right. So I, w- I was curious to know, where, where do you find yourself? Like, what's easiest if you're not careful for you? Uh, the three of them besides the high action and <laughs> high reflection. Because <laughs> it, it seems like in different areas of my life, um, like I do feel a pull towards um, cynicism sometimes when you can be, we talked way back when you talked with Dr. Turner about being armchair theologians. Like that's mm-hmm. how you can approach life sometimes when you start weighing all the options of how to think about is you think that you can start doing so much reflection on things that you actually never really act on any of them. And instead, it turns you cynical towards anybody who does actually act on them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really what turns into, quickly turns into uh, harsh judgment um, and self-props. Um, so I have to be careful with that a lot of times um, because sometimes that, that action is necessary to step forward. But then I also find that I just blunder ahead sometimes without thinking through <laughs> even just how, um, how I communicate or mm-hmm. even it can be in small things like conversations. Um, but then ideally having self-reflection. But what I thought about with what he was talking about self-reflection, like the one thing he talked about is that the way it's done really usefully and formationally is when it's done in community. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to be a communal endeavor. But then I was just thinking like um, different hindrances to why we would not want to be reflective. Because um, I was thinking like the times in my life when I felt guilty are they're always after I've reflected, you know? <laughs> yeah. And guilty is not that fun of a feeling. And times when I've realized that I've done harm, like say I, I, I just blundered ahead with action, mm-hmm. the times I've realized that I want to have self-reflection or times I realized I didn't say something when I should say something or you know what I'm saying. Um, but that, yeah, and so that's what I kept thinking about when he was talking about that kind of reflection, how it seems to embrace the hard work of character development by um, learning, by, by just doing the hard work of actually taking the time and sitting down, reflecting on what you've done, what you've thought, what you haven't done, what you haven't mm-hmm. thought, um, and doing that within a community where people can see yeah. more than just your perspective. Um, yeah, because if, if you're reflecting on your own actions, I think there's less chance of you getting way out of bounds. But if you're reflecting on your actions collectively, then, I mean, what could be better than that? I think that's that's really a good thing for groups of people, for churches, really for anything. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I kept having the line, um, like I don't even think the song's about this, but <laughs> the line kept going through my head. It's by Reliant K. I'd rather forget forget and not slow down yeah. um, than, than face the regret for what I find, basically. Mm. Yeah. Um, kept thinking about that with why it's so he- why why it can be so hesitant to reflect. But so no, so then I was just thinking, um, what is a 
a reflective community look like but then at the same time like not just a reflective community a community that reflects and use that reflection to turn into an action yeah more action and yeah they should perpetuate each other sure. right right yeah. as for the de- development of character development of self but then development for um communal entities sure um corporate entities all right so yeah i was really i was just glad that he brought that idea up i thought that was yeah. so interesting but anyway thanks for listening and um we look forward to having you back next week Thank you.